Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marcellero, and this week my guest is Rebecca Rag Sykes, archaeologist. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. For the listeners, Rebecca Rag Sykes is an archaeologist, writer, and creative professional. She holds a PhD in archaeology from the University of Sheffield, which is UK, and she is the author of a just-published book called Kindred, which is about Neanderthal life, love, death, and art. We're going to get into Neanderthals in the second half of the show. But first, as is our custom with background mode, I'm eager to hear about how you became an archaeologist. Tell me your story of becoming. How did you get interested in archaeology when you were young? And tell me your career path. Well, I was one of those uh, those children that likes mucking around in the dirt, you know, dig stuff <laughs> up in the back garden, <laughs> likes to find dead animals and bring them home. You know? <laughs> I was one of those. Um, but no, I mean, I, I've, I've had parents who took me on, you know, holidays to historic sites. And oh, I was, yeah, I was devouring, you know, books about the Egyptians and the Romans and everything when I was small. And yeah, just a, an interest in in the the reality of of life in the past, and um, I guess I kind of turned towards prehistory in in my teens. I read um, a book uh, by Jean Owl. We probably your listeners know her. She had a very successful um, series of books called Earth's Children. They began in the nineteen eighties, but they're actually set in the Ice Age. Um, and uh, what really drew me to those those books was first of all the cover had a a girl you know in the ice age and so it was this this sort of female protagonist that was interesting as a as a 13 year old but also you know her books are fascinating in the detail with which she tries to reconstruct the world of the Pleistocene so the last ice age around 30,000 years ago her books are set um and you know the detail of of not only technology but but plants and and how you just survive and she wrote not only about our species homo sapiens the the, the girl who's is um the same species as us but she lives with neanderthals um and i think that is what really sparked my interest um sort of because she she wrote about them as completely whole but just another kind of human, you know, who, who live their lives, who have knowledge, who have understanding, empathy. Um, and I think that was what sort of took me forward um, when I went to university and, and began to specialize deeper and deeper into time. And then I ended up um, doing a PhD on the the later Neanderthal records in uh, Britain, which, although it's pretty sparse compared to, you know, the, the continent, um, you know, France and, and Germany and elsewhere, um, it's still very interesting. Um, and so I was privileged to, you know, study this material firsthand. You were locked in right away, I noticed from your CV that you got your bachelor's degree in archaeology, your master's in archaeology, and your PhD in archaeology, and you were interested from an early age. Many people kind of fluctuate, bounce around, change careers, but you were homed in uh, right away. Well, yeah, I mean, in some ways, yes. Um, you know, the interest in the past has always been there, but also I've, I've always had an interest in literature and telling stories. And, you know, I did English literature at, at our equivalent of high school and, um, you know, I was into the poetry club and, and I actually had to choose between should I go to art college or should I 
do archaeology and you know my parents said well <laughs> neither of them are going to get you a lot of money but maybe maybe go with archaeology um, and see how that runs and so I, I chose to do that but I had I had many passions and I'm, I'm sort of very fortunate to be able to combine them at this sort of point in my career. What are the job prospects for an archaeologist? I know that in astronomy there aren't too many job openings. Everybody's interested in astronomy but it's, jobs are hard to come by. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's there's many parallels between archaeology and astronomy, and you know what we do, we look into the past and all that. But yeah, I mean, if you are looking for an academic career in archaeology, it's hugely competitive, um, and I think there are there's definitely areas that you can do. I mean, what's what's wonderful about archaeology today, and what you know has made writing this book so. Um, fascinating and, and possible is is just how specialized archaeology is now um, and you know rather than being someone like me who who's sort of specializes in a particular period um, you can also um, train to be like a geo archaeologist where you have a skill set that allows you to cross different chronological boundaries and so that's that's one good way to to think about it are you thinking of Dr. Sarah Parkak in Alabama, who does archaeology from satellites? Yeah, she does remote sensing um, work, although she obviously she works in Egypt as well. So yeah. I think a lot of people have different strings to their bows nowadays. She's been on the show. She was great. Very interesting. She was yeah. one of the first to do archaeology from satellite photos when she was a graduate student. Yeah. It was an amazing yeah. show. Yeah, cool. How did you get interested in Neanderthals? Um, well, I mean, aside from sort of my childhood interest, um, well, I chose my my bachelor's degree. I went to Bristol partly because I knew that they had a course on rock art, and I was really interested in doing that. Um, but I loved other stuff. I mean, like there was a course on maritime archaeology, and I was really into like Viking boats and things, you know. Um, but as I did my master's, um, I... I had to choose between going to Oxford to do a, an MPhil, which is more a sort of a um, sort of a study-based um, degree, whereas I chose to go to Southampton because they have a centre for archaeology of human origins, and they have a fantastic teaching collection of um, stone tools that they've had made by you know living artisans, um, and it's this sort of collection that is based on real nineteenth-century sites, and they have like a fake archive that goes with it, so they teach you how to look at these objects, how to understand the techniques that go into making them, which allow you to read not only individual pieces, but like entire groupings of, of objects. And that sort of training was really what got me into being a stone tool person. So we call them lithics. So I'm a lithic analyst, um, but also Neanderthals. And I really sort of began to be interested in in their archaeology specifically um, and sort of the, the different technologies that they had. Did you have a thesis advisor who was a mentor and uh, really helped you along? Or were there other notable professors that really took you under their wing? Uh, yeah, certainly at, um, during my master's, um, the teaching there was fantastic. Uh, John McNabb um, was uh, one of my tutors during the, the lithic training. And also um, I was very fortunate to have a supervisor, um, Professor Clive Gamble, who is very well known in, in, the, in the field. And he... He has a great sort of eagle's eye view of archaeology, which is a little bit like what I've tried to do with Kindred, where you, you know, with Neanderthals, we have 
quite a broad array of information about them, but you need to sort of move between different forms of evidence because some of it is sparse, but it will tell you about other areas of their lives too. So, And that's kind of how he approached um, the archaeology of the Paleolithic um, himself in some of his, his works. Um, and so I found those very inspiring early on. So for the listeners, uh, remind us of the difference between an archaeologist and an anthropologist. Well, pretty much archaeologists are like anthropologists, but for dead people. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a paleoanthropologist yeah. would be specifically uh, dead well, people pale- too, right? Yeah, but that gets a bit tricky. Paleoanthropology tends to be sort of slightly more bone focused um it's it's more of a difference in terms between um sort of american tradition versus european continental whereas you know we would say anthropology in europe is you know for living people um whereas archaeology is the study of people in the past through their material remains which obviously (coughs) in historic (coughs) periods you also have textual (coughs) evidence you have um, historical documents but for prehistory where you don't don't have that all you have are the material remnants either of their bodies or of the things that they made and used um, and the world around them so that's really what archaeology is so what does an archaeologist do in her spare time for fun oh my goodness uh, <laughs> um well i'm doing a lot more reading now i finished writing the book <laughs> Um, I'm reading a, a book, a fantastic book um, by Neil Price, which is new, actually, all about um, the Vikings called The Children of Ash and Elm. I love that. Um, I actually really like foraging for fun and um, for plants and things. Um, you know, one of the the connections to the Neanderthals is having to learn about the, the world that they lived in, the kind of plants that they used. And it's it's sort of bled out into my own life and made me you know, more aware of all the different edible species there are around that we just think of as weeds. And, you know, that knowledge in in Europe has been widely lost, whereas in the Americas, you obviously you still have indigenous communities who have maintained that knowledge. And so learning that, uh, in you know, in terms of what is around me and what I can find and eat has actually been something that's, uh, that's become a real interest. So you also, um, I read, work on an organization that promotes women in science? Yes, uh, Travel Blazers. Um, that's what we're called. We have a website, travelblazers.com. Um, and that was founded by um, myself and three other women um, quite a few years ago now, I think about seven, eight years ago, um, when we were when we were all sort of early career researchers, just uh, sort of coming out of our PhDs. Um, and essentially, we wanted to create a an accessible online resource that sort of highlighted and celebrated the work of women in archaeology and the earth sciences more broadly, so geology and paleontology, because there's sort of a a long sort of misunderstanding that either there weren't very many women around um, very early on in in the history of those disciplines um, or that they were quite isolated, um, you know, if they existed at all. Whereas, um, you know, there's been academic work profiling um, women for some time, but it's not known so well outside um, academia. And 
also the more we looked and we, we create little profiles that go on our website we've got well over 200 um the more connections between these women we found too and um, so you know there is there's research collaborations mentoring training and and you can follow this sort of this wave through the generations to, to women today and there's vast amounts of women working in these areas so we sort of wanted to do this and, and in fact today over half of the articles we have are now submitted by you know the broader community whether people in those fields or just members of the public who are interested and that's absolutely wonderful i'm curious about the operational aspects of um, your research when you go out to a site do you usually go with a team and each team members are looking at different things or do you tend to work alone um i think archaeology now is um massively a team endeavor for sure um if you go to any neanderthal excavation you would find probably one or two people who are the the pis the principal investigators who who are more senior and who've got the funding um but they're still there you know working working right down in the trenches um overseeing the excavation but then you have a whole array of people some people who are who are learning to excavate um and then you have specialists you have people who specialize in you know scanning the site with a laser to record every fine detail as as we excavate you have people like me who study the stone tools um you have people who study the bones and then you have you know masses of people who specialize in different kinds of dating so certainly people don't really sort of go off and you know blast a cave with dynamite these days (laughs) (laughs) they don't they shouldn't um but yeah that kind of lone sort of um indiana jones figure is very far from the truth it's 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 a collegiate sort of enterprise these days my amateur understanding is is that uh, there are lots of Neanderthal sites in Germany, but uh, are, yeah. you have found some in the UK. Is that recent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that recent? Um, and are there many? Well, the UK doesn't have that many um, compared to uh, sort of the rest of Europe. Um, for my PhD, I think there was about 20-something sites I looked at. Those are from the later period for Neanderthals um, in Britain. So there's like a reoccupation of Britain from 60,000 years ago until about somewhere around 40,000 years ago. And that was my sort of area study. Then there's a big gap and there seems to have been nobody around for various reasons to do with sort of climate and access to the island um, sort of because of sea levels rising fast. But then from about 250,000 years ago, um, back somewhat to three. 50 something like that um you have early neanderthal archaeology in this country um, and those sites look quite different in terms of what they were doing and things like this and um yeah other other people who have sort of focused on on that uh, earlier period um but one of the the more recent sites that was found in the in the 2000s um is a site called linford quarry um really amazing site that was just um sort of a found by chance during quarrying work in, in a gravel pitch there's a really beautiful um preserved channel full of gorgeous black organic sediments um within which there is um remains of at least 11 mammoths along with um, some horse reindeer woolly rhino and loads and loads of absolutely gorgeous artifacts made by neanderthals and um, by faces so that's um, big flat objects flaked on two sides so you might know them as hand axes um absolutely beautiful and all the the debris from their production 
um, which is, you know, often even more valuable than those those single objects themselves because it tells us how those sites, individual sites, were connected more widely across the landscape. Cool. Well, well how about taking a break? Um, we're going to have to go to commercial now and start chatting with archaeologist and author Rebecca Reg Sykes. We'll be back in 60 seconds, folks. Stay with us. And in the second half of the show, we'll talk about your new book. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Get started today on Linode with a $100 free credit for listeners of Background Mode. You can find all the details at linode.com bgm. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24 by 7 by 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Visit linode.com bgm and click on Create Free Account button to get started. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with archaeologist and author Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes. Hello again. So, <laughs> so you've written this new book. I think it's out now on Kindle. At least. Uh, it's out in the states. It's out in uh, the UK and Commonwealth already, but in the states, it's out on the 27th of October. So yeah, very very soon. <laughs> okay, so it's called Kindred, and it is all about the life and loves and death and art and. Everything about the Neanderthal. I have a copy that you sent me in PDF, and I've looked through it, and it's amazing. Thank you we so much. Have, we don't have nearly enough time to go through it in detail, but I want to sort of have you give us an overview of the book. Um, let me ask you a few questions. So sure. tell us how the Neanderthals fit into the timeline of our human evolution so we can kind of get a feel for when they existed. Okay, so most people have definitely heard of the Neanderthals, um, but it can be quite difficult to place them sort of chronologically. Um, sometimes they float in like sort of just prehistory and they're associated in people's minds with mammoths and cold. But, you know, actually understanding their relationship to us in time is not always um, easy. So what sort of helps with that is if we go right back into the broader context of human evolution and um, the earliest archaeology that we now have, so sort of definitely worked stone technology, goes back way, way, way far to 3.3 <coughs> million years ago. Um, this is in Africa, and it's definitely not our own genus, so not any kind of homo species. This is the Australopithecines uh, that came before us. Um, you have to sort of come forward to around 2 million years to reach um, the earliest uh, sort of species of, of Homo. And then you get to Homo erectus and ergaster, which is the African version. And at this point, people are um, living quite um, sort of recognizable hunter-gatherer lifestyles, um, hunting. They have these bifaces I was mentioning earlier, similar technology. But from a million, you have to come all the way right down to around 350,000 years ago, which is very recent, 
to reach the point where we begin to see Neanderthals emerging both in an anatomical sense and also um, in terms of the archaeology that they made. And in fact, they are actually quite um, sort of related in, in contemporary chronological terms with us because we also seem to have been emerging in Africa um around the same time. So by about 300,000 years ago in Africa, you have in different populations of very early Homo sapiens, you have features that look a bit like us, like a flat face in some of them, but the rear of the head is more primitive. Let and me ask a question thing, here. Let me get this yeah. straight if I understand. I'm a little confused. Do Neanderthals and Homo sapiens have a common ancestor in Homo erectus? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So we are both emerging around 300, 350, 400,000 years ago, but we share a common ancestor um, back as early as 700,000 years ago. So there's like this root sort of shared ancestor and we begin splitting at that point. And it's only couple of hundred thousand years after that that neanderthals begin to look like neanderthals and we really begin to look like ourselves so you know there is there's a much more ancient shared heritage um with the neanderthals but i mean you know i say seven hundred thousand years ago that's still very recent you know in in the broader sense of millions and millions of years of human evolution so for me in many ways neanderthals are the closest hominins, as in we've known about them the longest uh, since the Victorian period, 19th century. Um, we know them the best in terms of their anatomy because we have the most remains of them and they're the closest to us in time. So in many ways, we, we should expect to know them the best and, and expect them to be really quite similar to us. You have a great analogy in the book and I, I read uh, about uh, uh, creating an analogy between the 13.8 billion years old age of the universe and compressing that into a 12-month period of time. When you do that, the dinosaurs appear around Christmas time, and the Neanderthals yeah. and, the, and the human Homo sapiens appear about just a few minutes before New Year's Eve. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's, it's Carl Sagan that used that to, to great effect. In, <clears throat> yeah. in I think he was the first. Neil deGrasse Tyson uses it too. Yeah, exactly. And and But that's the thing, you know, even if you're looking, you know, ignore the dinosaurs if you just look at our own history of human evolution neanderthals are super close to us in time um so it's not really surprising that as archaeology as a discipline has matured in the last 160 years um you know the more that we can see with the data the more similar neanderthals are, are looking to to us in many ways um, so i think that's one of the most striking things that that i've tried to do in the book because you know the neanderthals are in the headlines a lot um you know there's a new discovery here there but actually sort of giving people that really broad understanding of, of the wider context of of the the, re- the revolution in our in our understanding of their lives as a whole that's hard to do because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers of, of scientific articles written about neanderthals just in the last five years 10 years you know it's a massive amount of information and that's why i've tried to distill um you know the really interesting stuff that might not be what you see in the newspapers but it really forms our understanding do we think there was like a single point of origin for the Neanderthals or did they kind of emerge all over Northern Europe at the same time? It's a great question. We don't know. Um, certainly 
if what was going on in Africa is any guide, um, that is looking very much like there was what we're calling a meta population at a continental scale where different um, groups were sort of um, diversifying and evolving particular features. And then there was interbreeding um, and this, some things were shared and other things weren't. So I think potentially there may have been something similar with Neanderthals, but we don't know um, sort of the the geographic extent of where they emerged. You know, people often say think of Neanderthals as a European species, but really they are a Western Eurasian species. Um, if you look purely at the ge- the geographical range, um, they actually cover more of Asia, <laughs> you know, um, or rather there's there's more mile you know, square miles is is Asian rather than European. Um, so it's an interesting question as to exactly where sort of we we might be missing for their early emergence because of sort of issues around the history of research and where people were looking. But certainly we can see them. Um, or at least they're they're very close relations um, in Iberia at a, a site called the Cima de los Huesos um, in Spain, uh, and on a genetic basis um, and to some extent anatomical, these people who lived around four hundred and thirty thousand years ago are pretty much the precursors of Neanderthals. Um, so there definitely is um, is, a, is a core in Europe, but perhaps there were other areas as well where this process was happening. What are some of the notable myths about the Neanderthals that have been busted recently that in our new understanding? Oh, what did, what, what did we think and what got overturned dramatically? Um, I think I think it's a sort of a rather than sort of some gigantic bombs going off in our understanding that the, the exception to that is the genetic evidence for interbreeding a decade ago when we when that was confirmed that there was interbreeding that really was like a poor you know huge huge impact in the scientific community as well as um in the public's mind but beyond that in terms of our understanding of their lives it's more like a a very long term certainly the past 30 years there's just been a huge sort of aggradation of information that's come together and when you look at that as a whole you can certainly overturn sort of ideas about them that you know they were not creative for example that they just did the same old stuff for 300,000 years that's completely not accurate um we can look at speech and language and art yeah yeah i mean the art thing is is a sort of a tricky question because art has a really specific definition for some people, and I prefer to say aesthetics. But in terms of speech, um, I would think most um, most researchers now would uh, agree that certainly spoken communication, you know, using using voices, was very important to them because they have very similar anatomy um, in terms of what the sounds they could produce. There was probably some differences in vowels, um, but not much. But the real sort of interesting fact is that although their inner ear form is a bit different to ours, it seems to have been focusing in on the same sound frequencies as ours is, which is human speech. You know, our ears are really tuned into that. So that implies that this is perhaps a shared feature that we both got from our from our shared common ancestor um, and if so then 
some kind of talking was happening, but whether we can call it language, like what you and I are doing, that's a different question. Um, but in terms of other things, like the complexity of, of their adaptations, um, you know, they were flexible. They lived across gigantic... Did they have families? Did they tend to uh, have a male and a female build a family together, or was that not yet a cultural I, thing? I think... If you look at uh, the anatomy, there's no massive differences in size between male and female. So it's not going to be like gorillas, um, probably, where you have one male and loads of females. Um, and also, the, just the way that they live the rest of their lives, it's based around food sharing, bringing things back from the hunt. That is much more like the way that bonobos live rather than chimpanzees, the, the sort of relatives of bonobos, who are much more aggressive. Um, and chimpanzee society is dominated by males uh, and male violence, whereas bonobos have uh, female coalitions of friendship, um, really. So uh, for me, I would think that Neanderthal um, sort of family life was more likely to be based in sort of emotional connection. Did Neanderthals expand their dietary regimen in, in any way. I was talking to another archaeologist about how the ability to be bipedal and to move easily and graciously on two feet expanded the range and that expanded food sources. Did, were Neanderthals vegetarians or were they no, omnivores? No, no, no. They definitely were not um, vegetarian. We have abundant evidence that they were top top hunters in their local environment um but there has been increasing so barbecue mastodon was on the menu well i mean if you're a hunter-gatherer you don't want too much lean meat i think what they were mostly interested in was fat and certainly marrow they were really into smashing up carcasses and processing them to the you know the fullest oh, that, was, that was to get the proper nutrition right because exactly um, you can't just live off lean meat um so they were doing that but there is increasing evidence that they did eat plants um when it was around and when it made sense for them they ate small game too and you know there's there's been these ideas that maybe they were too stupid to hunt birds rabbits you know and that really doesn't look like the case it is looks there evidence to me they were using a bow and arrow or spears no spears yes but as far as we know not bow and arrows um that may be one of the key differences in terms of hunting uh, technologies but overall they were interested in quality of whatever resources were around them whether it was stone or the animals or sort of you know getting to the question of aesthetics and, and art they were really interested in pigments um you know and they went for the highest quality pigments and things so we can we can tell all this from like you know minute chemical analysis and and are things like that about painting their bodies or, or cave walls or both we are not entirely sure it could have been both and that's actually a good point because when we talk about the Neanderthals, we should remember that Neanderthals living in Palestine are going to have a completely different life experience than Neanderthals living in northern France um, versus Siberia, you know. So the the different kind of worlds and, and the diversity of, of what their lives were is also something that we should remember. So there came a time when Homo sapiens moved out of Africa and moved north into Europe and interacted with the Neanderthals. How did that go? How do we think that went? And what was the nature of the intermingling? Well, it, it depends when you're asking. This is one of the really fascinating changes that has come out the past 10 years that until that point, um, there was sort of an assumption that maybe 
the earliest of these dispersals of Homo sapiens from Africa were maybe 50,000, probably 40. And that's when we replaced the Neanderthals. Then we found out that there was interbreeding. Um, so that changed the picture. But then the more genetic samples that we've been getting, both from Neanderthals and ancient Homo sapiens, is pointing to a much longer chronology of contact, although it's intermittent. And actually, we now have been finding remains of early Homo sapiens in Asia and even in Australia, way older than than sort of 40,000. So people are in Australia by 60,000 years ago, probably before that. They are in China somewhere between 80 to 120,000 years ago. So the, the span of time across which the potential for, for contact to have, have happened has just ballooned. Um, and we definitely see it reflected in the genetics. Now it looks like there are multiple periods during which there was some um, contact. And one of the most sort of interesting recent uh, studies just came out um, indicates that the entire Neanderthal Y chromosome, so that's the male sex chromosome, may actually have been sort of taken on from early contact before 200,000 years ago with Homo sapiens. So, oh. you know, this, it, yeah, I mean, the complexity is is mind-boggling now, and it's, it's, it's really something for us to keep up as specialists, never mind, you know, people who, who are not sort of <laughs> receiving all this information in the science journals all the time. But it's, that's why they're so interesting, because they keep you on your toes, you know, um, and you do have to reformulate your ideas. I have a jackpot question, born of great ignorance. So, so from what you've told me, I'm just I'm being an amateur scientist here. Is it found that Homo sapiens in Europe with Neanderthal genes were better suited somehow, better adapted to the environment than the classic Neanderthal, and that's why the classic Neanderthal passed away? We can't say that. Um... I was it's, just guessing, we don't just have, guessing. Yeah, I and mean, it's interesting because it does look as if some of what we got from Neanderthals may have been related to things like metabolism. You know, potentially that's to do with coping with a northern latitude sort of life, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe to do with uh, circadian rhythms, like the, the difference in available daylight compared to the tropics. Um, something's going on there. It looks like there's also stuff to do with immune systems. So some of the interbreeding may have given us some health benefits, because you can imagine, you know, um, different waves of, of dispersals coming out of, of uh, North African regions um, would be encountering quite different uh, diseases and things like this. Um, but also, you know, I mean, it's very difficult to, to tell, but there's no reason why they Maybe couldn't. The diseases also we gave them were worse than the diseases they gave us. Well, I mean, you know, that's that is a question. Having finished this book in June this year, while the whole pandemic has been going on, you know, some of the ideas about or was there a great disease that, that did the Neanderthals mm. in? That, that seemed a bit fringe uh, until <laughs> until one witnesses, you know, the, the speed that, that a coronavirus can sort of move, even, okay, we're a global civilization now, but, but you know, just the, the speed at which things can change and the devastating impact that can have. Um, it, perhaps something like that happened. But again, you know, what was the end of the Neanderthals in one sort of area of their range is not going to be 
exactly the same as what was happening elsewhere, you know, across yeah. thousands and yeah. thousands of miles. So we're out of time, unfortunately. Yeah. So, <laughs> so answer the one question that I should have asked but didn't ask, and we'll wrap it up. Okay. So um, what should I have asked that I didn't? What's What do you want to say about Neanderthals that we kind of missed some important um, point? I always like to, you know, people say, oh, what, what would be your dream Neanderthal find? That's a good question. And, and my mm -hmm. answer is mm -hmm. always, um, I think you, some of your listeners will probably remember the, the Iceman uh, find that body from the Italian um, Alps that was that was found under the Ice's Bronze Age Man, um, you know, entirely preserved body. Or all these animals coming out of this, the permafrost in Siberia. I would love to find a permafrost Neanderthal, not just to see the body but to see what they carried with them just on in their daily lives you know all the organic material that doesn't get preserved you know like what did their bags look like we don't know <laughs> <laughs> they must have had bags you know um so yeah that would be my dream find yeah with an ipod in the bag <laughs> that right. would throw us up that yeah. would really throw you for a loop all right well i want to thank you for joining me and talking about one of my favorite new subject neanderthals Thank you so it's much. It's been delightful. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they have interesting and polite questions. Um, I'm on Twitter um, as Le Moustier, um, so that's at Le Moustier, L-E-M-O-U-I-S-T-I-E-R. And uh, you can also look at my website, which is RebeccaRagSykes.com, and I have an email contact on there as well. And I'll put that in the show notes. All right, Thank well, you. Cool. Thank you for joining me. It's been delightful. You're a wonderful guest. Thank you so much. Folks, you've been listening to John Martellaro with guest Rebecca, Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes, archaeologist and author. And her new book is out soon called Kindred. If you're interested in Neanderthals, like I am, and everybody else is, you'll want to read this book. It's fantastic. So you've been listening to Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>